Hi, everyone. Hey, all, and welcome to this week's episode of What You Need to Know But Didn't Feel Like Reading. I'm Maria Smalley. I'm Tina Shannon, and this week we will be talking about Chapter 6, which is titled Political Genius. Political Genius. Political Genius. Um, and, uh, but before we begin, a quick recap of last week. Last week we talked about... Um, Last week we covered we covered both chapters four and five. Chapter four was the making of Rahm Emanuel. Uh, that chapter introduced us to Rahm Emanuel, who was a former Chicago mayor and chief of staff to Obama. He started his career in politics at a time where the strategy was turning more towards big donor money and the need for fundraising, which he was excellent at. Which we will hear more about in a minute. And we will hear more about that one today. We continue with the story of Rahm Emanuel with chapter six. Chapter five, called The Dean Bat. In this chapter, we learned about the presidential race of Howard Dean and how the rise of bloggers influenced some lawmakers like Harry Reid, who embraced the new technology, while other lawmakers were not as quick to catch on to the future of the internet. Howard Dean's presidential race is also well known for his virtual bat that filled as donations poured into his campaign. It was one of the first ultra-successful online small donor fundraisers raising $1.25 million. That would change the way campaigns looked at fundraising and its relationship with the online community building. All right, so to move on to chapter six. Um, I sort of have um, titled this chapter, um, if I was gonna title it, I have two, two, two possible titles. Title number one would be is toxic masculinity the correct organizing paradigm for the Dem Party? Um, and the second title, alternate title, could be, is everything they told us about electability true? Those are both very good ones. Right, right. Um, yeah, at first I thought, since this was a short chapter, that it wouldn't be that important. But upon looking at it again, I think there are a lot of important lessons in this chapter. Yeah, it covers a lot of different different scenarios. Yeah. where certain lessons should have been taken and were or were not. Oh, yeah, more often than not, were yep. not. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so it starts out with the myth of a manual, of Rahm Emanuel. Um, a book was written by the Chicago Tribune reporter um, Natal Na Naftali Ben-David. I think that's about right. Um, yeah, okay. And he's, I believe he's Israeli, like Rom. Okay, so um, in this book, it was the title of this book is The Thumpin', How Rahm Emanuel and the Democrats Learned to Be Ruthless and Defeated the Republican Revolution. Um, and the, the, you want to read the quote from the book? Yeah, on page 73, it kind of sums up the whole strategy. Emmanuel was fighting a weak, feminine image that had long haunted the Democratic Party, in part from its ties to women and gays, apart from its perceived weakness on national defense. Oof. Ugh. Oof. <laughs> Ugh. We did all that work in the 60s through the 80s to create a rainbow coalition. Right, that we... Just about. for men like Rahm Emanuel <clears throat> to come in and take the bait from Republicans who were like, oh, you're weak because you have women and gays on right, your side. Right, right. Like, you're a sissy. Yes, you're you're the sissy boy. Right, instead of saying, yeah, we're sissies. And, and we're going to kick it? your ass, too. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Um, John Lapp, 
the executive director of the DCC, um, said DCCC, which is the Democratic Congressional Campaign Cam Committee, committee um, to re as a reminder from last time, um, on recruiting re veterans, he said, that's the stuff I like, I love, tough, macho Democrats taking on Republicans. Um, so many operatives and candidates and staffers and consultants were influenced by this narrative set by the 2006 electoral victories um, and the way Rahm Emanuel spun them. Yes. Um, and this is all magnified by Rahm Emanuel's great skill at media relations. He formed mm -hmm. relationships with reporters, with newspaper writers. Um, that's part of, there are many things that are genius about Emanuel and that's, I yes. think that's one of them. That part also ties back into last week when we discussed the bloggers. At this time, when he was implementing the strategy, yeah, yeah, reporting was still very much controlled by the big, the big dogs: Washington Post, New York Times, um, a lot of the ones we know nowadays, the Huffington Post, uh, MSNBC itself. They weren't progressive. They weren't as involved. Right, right. Yeah, you'll remember from last last week mm -hmm. that that was an important point. Yes. Um, so let's unpack that though the success of the 2006 mm -hmm. electoral victories. Um, so Rahm Emanuel has portrayed this over time as his great victory. And they did take back the house from 06 to 08, mm -hmm. but, but the, on a very tenuous So the question is, is did that happen because of Rahm Emanuel? Or did that happen, was Rahm Emanuel just in the right place at the right time promoting Rahm Emanuel? So let's 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 look at some some details of that election. Um, I think one really informative story is that in 2006, Congressman Congressman Brad Miller and North Carolina Dems had recruited a man named Rick Glazier to run for Congress. He had won four elections as a progressive in a conservative district in North Carolina. Um, he had won twice as school board and then t two different cycles as state rep. Um, they brought Glazier to, to meet Rahm Emanuel um, as head of the DCCC, um, but Rahm had already recruited Mike Dunn, who was a Marine veteran. Um, and instead, he went with Dunn and ignored the local input. Mm -hmm. um, Dunn's campaign immediately collapsed upon contact with Democratic audiences in North Carolina. His positions were that abortion rights encourage promiscuity. He was talked about being in favor of a constitutional amendment to ban same-sex marriages. And he even thought that domestic partnership contracts should be declared void. Um, and interestingly enough, he had significant financial liabilities that um, Ron Emanuel was unaware of. It just makes you wonder who did the research that day. I know, I know, especially since Rom touts himself as a political genius. Yes, he's all about finances as well. Right. So what's How'd up you with miss this? that? Right. So um, Glacier drops out. And Ron goes back to Glazier right before the filing <laughs> deadline and says, oh, maybe we, maybe I do want you to run. And Glazier just said no. So they got an unknown 
um, to, to jump in, get the signatures, get on the ballot. And um, this unknown, this complete unknown lost. A high school teacher named Larry Kissel. Right. He lost by only 329 votes, a complete unknown without any structure of his own, mm -hmm. which makes it very clear that Glazier could have easily won. Yes. Um, so this, what's his name again? The high school teacher? Larry Kissel. Larry Kissel ran again in 2008, won, and became an unreliable Dem vote in Congress. Does that sound familiar? Um, he voted against the Affordable Care Act and a lot of other Dem legislation. Um, Glazier, on the other hand, served 13 years in the North Carolina state legislation and never lost an election. No, and he would have been a reliable Democrat vote every time. He was a publicly supportive of the ACA at the time. Right. Um, From state office, even. He yeah. Didn't, when he didn't have to say a word about yeah. it. He worked to, to champion the law with his own reps and the other reps around him. Right. He also, I thought it was very interesting. He said that he would have never hesitated in fully supporting the ACA. And he added that the Democratic weakness on that specific issue was blood in the water for the right side. I thought the candidates who wavered early gave the Tea Party the impetus to grow. Right. Had we been, had the Democrat Party been more solidified during the fight for the ACA? Dare we say stronger? They would have definitely <laughs> been stronger. And we wouldn't have given the rise of the Tea Party, which eventually gives rise to Trump. Right. So how strong really is toxic masculinity? It's not strong at all. You can uh, cuss all you want. You're still not cool. So I'm going to go through a list here of, of other elections during that cycle um, that Rahm Emanuel did not support. New Hampshire, 2006. DCCC backs conservative Democratic State House Minority Leader Jim Craig over local grassroots activist Carol Shea Porter. Although vastly outspent in the primary, Shea Porter defeats Craig by 13 points. The DCCC abandons her. She spends less than $300,000 and wins. Once in Congress, she votes for every Dem priority without apology. Yep. Even though the Democratic Party did not even back her election. California, 2006. The DCCC backs conservative Dem airplane pilot tough guy who loses the primary to Jerry McNerney, who Rahm announced he wouldn't support in the general election after he won. Um, McNerney wins the general election with a grassroots blog and blogger coalition and becomes a reliable Dem vote. There's them bloggers again. <clears throat> Upstate New York, 2006. DCC backs a former DCCC, also reads as Rahm Emanuel, uh, backs a former Republican in, a, in the primary, just turned Democrat. Because she was a great fundraiser. Right. She's crushed by an environmentalist musician, local activist. DCC declares the race unwinnable, withdraws support from him, and he wins anyway, becoming a reliable Democratic vote in Congress. Yep. Um, I see a pattern. <laughs> Uh, also in New York State in 2006, DCCC ignores progressive Dan Maffey. He loses by a 
thousand votes, a mere thousand votes. In 2008, they decide to support him and he easily wins. Um, and he is now, uh, no, I'm sorry, that's John. Okay, I'm sorry, my bad. In Kentucky, 2006, John Yarmouth, liberal with an alt-weekly magazine, is written off as a lost cause. He wins in Kentucky. And he is still a progressive vote in Congress mm -hmm. and is chair of the House Budget Committee. A position once held by Paul Ryan. Right. Iowa, 2006. David Lubsick, progressive, won without Emanuel DCCC support, served till 2020 retirement undefeated. Mm -hmm. Both he and um, Yarmouth, both he and Yarmouth were senior members of the Energy and Commerce Committee while being strong environmentalists. Yep. So, like, wouldn't we want that? <laughs> and uh, interestingly enough, we're here um, reporting to you from Western Pennsylvania. In our district, uh, the DCC did not support a Democrat back in 2006. His name was Altmeyer. Um, when he was running for office, he talked about supporting Medicare for all. Um, and he had heavy union support and heavy move on support. Mm -hmm. And he won um, against uh, a pretty right wing Republican, um, although we ended up being unhappy with him. Yeah, Altmeyer had a lot of progressive words to say while running and was much more of a, a blue dog Democrat once he actually held the position. Yeah, he was actually the blue dog that was responsible for um, getting the public option taken out of the Affordable Care Act. Yeah. So we ended up not supporting him. So did he run against Keith Rothfuss back in the day? Was mm -hmm. that his opponent who then took took him on and won? No, he ran against Melissa Hart. Okay. Otherwise known as Melissa Hartless. <laughs> <laughs> I vaguely remember that. <laughs> right, right. I don't remember Altmaier that much, though, either. Right. We worked really hard for him, so we really gave him a lot of hell mm -hmm. when he turned. Um, so those are the races. Those are the progressive races that we might want to consider, um, you know, when we think about electability. Yes. But Establishment ruled a lot of those people completely unwinnable, and then they went and blew things out of right. the water when they had right. a good grassroots fundraising going on. They had foot soldiers on the ground being well-organized. In places we think about as being red, North Carolina, Kentucky. Kentucky. Um, but another way to look at it is also to look at Emmanuel himself and people he did support. Yes. So, he time and time again shows people who could hardly even be considered Democrats right. based on some of their uh, views. So, so the top three highest dollar recipients that mm -hmm. year of the DCCC lost. Yeah. I um, think they dumped like something like $2 million into those three races alone. Right. Right. One of them was uh, Tammy Duckworth. Um, he backed Tammy Duckworth against a local progressive that had not only local progressive support, but national progressive support. 
And Duckworth didn't even live in the district. So she had no grassroots support. Right. Um, and when they recruited her, they weren't even sure she was a Democrat. Um, they recruited her because of her military combat service. And with the millions they were spending in the primary to defeat the progressive, she barely beat the progressive in the mm -hmm. primary. And then she lost the general election. And uh, it just has to make you wonder what would have happened there if, if the Democratic Party at large, through Rahm Emanuel and the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, had supported the progressive. Yeah. How far could that progressive have made it? Right. And, and what would we be talking about now? Um, in policy and and, and legislation mm -hmm. that we need so bad in the middle of this epidemic, pandemic. Um, so progressives within the party by this time are starting to get pretty irate and they start forming an alternative organ, organizing themselves um, consciously like looking at themselves as different from the DCCC. Dean's pioneering work in small donor fundraising that, that we mentioned at the top of this broadcast um, supported the approach because mm -hmm. they could now see their way clear for small donations to, to collect up and make a, into something real and big. Um, so the strategists and operatives outside of the DCCC start to coalesce. Um, two names that were, that were pretty prominent were Mike Lux, of the American Family Voices, and Larry Scanlon from AFSCME. Do you know what AFSCME stands for? Uh, I mean, I know that it is a union, it's the, but I, I can never remember the actual yeah. full acronym. <clears throat> yeah, it's the Federation of State, um, County, and Municipal Employees. Oh, okay. Yeah, I think it's the American Federation of, yeah, AFSCME. It's, AFSCME. Yeah, our government workers. Um, so... Lux put out a memo. Yeah, he put Lux out memo. a memo that was uh, pretty interesting, and I bet it made Rom swear a lot. I'm sure it did. <laughs> he committed the sin of putting down on paper what was largely going unsaid. So he analyzed the 2016 cycle, and here's what he said. Now, um, I got some numbers here, and anyone who knows me is going to be laughing that I'm going to be giving you numbers because I'm notoriously bad with numbers, but I wrote them down. So I think I can say it. All right. So 10 million was spent on five races where Democrats won by 10 to 24 points. So 10 million was spent on races that were very easily won. Right. These are races where they kind of already had it in the bag. 17 races um, got 1.5 million. Five won by less than five points. Seven Dems in these races lost by less than seven points. So the an analysis was that these were close races that it made sense to put money into, but they only put $1.5 million into these 17 races, whereas they put $10 million into the easy races. Right. Right. All those five races, those five races that won extremely easily got like $2 million each and they split less than 2 million between 17 races where the Democrats were much closer to winning. Um, yeah. Where it where, would have really given them a boost they needed. Yeah. Where it was a battle. There was yes. a battle. Yeah. It was an actual battleground in those races. Right. right. There were 12 races with no spending 
the DCCC gave no money that were decided by six points or less. No money was put into some very, very close races. And three of these were won mm -hmm. by progressives with no money from the DCCC. So what would have happened if we put money into those races? Right. They might have won much easier. Right. For the ones that didn't win. Right. Um, so out of 65 targeted races, the DCC got 18 wrong, which is a 28% targeting failure. That's a pretty high targeting failure. Right. When you're talking about that kind of money. Yes. It's not like this extreme amount of money being moved around. Right. It's not like sitting on the porch here guessing like who's going to win like, like that was a lot of money to yeah, it's not like they were throwing 20 bucks at some of the races and be like oh good luck mm -hmm. and another interesting point was that one third of the seats picked up <clears throat> were in districts where the party had been crushed in the previous cycle and because of this big money non-populist strategy that ron was running that wasn't seen by mm -hmm. the party at large. And like, what does that mean when a third of seats picked up were in previously, you know, it seats that kind of a flip is happening. Why aren't we, why didn't we see that? Why didn't? It means we definitely weren't rating the electorate correctly. Right, right. So Lux, Lux who, who was in this insurgent group that was forming, wrote a book called how to Democrat in the Age of Trump. And I thought it was really interesting. He describes, in the book, he describes meetings with political consultants who go over polling data that shows that people want a populist message and they want populist legislation and they're interested in that, and then spends the other half of the meeting advising and convincing the, demo, the candidate not to do that. Right. And that is such, I mean, any of us involved in politics know about that dynamic. Yes. Um, so Emmanuel is all about the money by his own account. If you listen to him, he's all about the money. And we think it's time to move on past that. And let's see, you're going to read from the last. Okay. That's right yeah. Here. Yeah. yeah. So um, into, I'm going to read from page 81. In 2006, Rom's greatest antagonist outside the party was what was known then as the blogosphere. One of the loudest and most effective critics, critics at the time was David Serrata, who was then just a few years removed from working as a senior aide for Dave Obey, the top Democrat in the Appropriations Committee. He quoted prophetically, though passingly, in the thumpin', for many, many years, the DCCC, under Rom's leadership especially, seemed to think that having no ideology, no convictions, is a winning formula. Even if you do win under that scenario because the Republicans have screwed up so much, you have created an extremely tenuous majority, one that might set you back many, many years. Right. Um, and he was definitely right. You know, we Democrats held the power from 06 to 08, but all it really served to do was infuriate and invigorate the right and mobilize them to stop <clears throat> what we were doing. But they also didn't move the dial far enough that they mobilized everybody else. Right, right. And if you think about it, you remember Jesse Jackson was all about trying to mobilize people who hadn't been voting. Yes. I mean, that's what the Rainbow Coalition is for. Yes, which was 
that seems to me was left completely out of the Rahm Emanuel strategy. There was no worry of voter registration or even really caring what the voter wanted other than getting them to vote for your candidate for no real reason. It makes it really hard on us local activists down here on the ground talking to people about why they should vote, trying to build the Democratic Party at Mm -hmm. the very ground. It makes it really hard on us when we keep being given candidates who aren't allowed to talk about issues. I'm glad to see Biden finally pushing past that. And yeah. Able to, he seems to have decided that he's just going to do what he wants. Right. We're going to have which a new is deal. Right. Yeah. We're, we're going to have a new deal. We're going to have the new deal. I think he really would like to leave a legacy on this country. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and what better way to do it than to push through the new deal like FDR did. And good on us and keeping the Rainbow Coalition alive. Yes. So he can do it. Yes. That's one thing the age of Trump did give us. I do believe we are more mobilized now. There are more people interested in giving the Democratic Party convictions, a real ideology. Right. Well, we've been here all along. Us older activists and Mm -hmm. a lot of the black activists have been here all along keeping the ideas alive just for this moment. It's our moment. Yep. So thanks for listening to us, and uh, we'll see you at the meeting. Hope to see everybody Wednesday.